Hey folks, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. This is episode number 35 and I am Jake Wiskirchen. It's the second installment of What the Heck is Play Therapy? We're going to go in a little deeper with Amanda Green this time around and discover what else she has to say about the concepts of play therapy. We hope that you find this episode as enlightening and interesting as the first one. It got some great feedback and some really good reviews. And um, I'm really glad to be talking to her again because uh, it's always fun to sit down with a colleague and discuss their various strengths. And I know that I learn a ton every time I, I speak to somebody who's a little bit out of my, my own wheelhouse. So this is an opportunity for the audience to learn a little bit more about what we do as therapists and how we do it. So sit back and enjoy episode number 35, which is the second installment of Play Therapy and What the Heck It Is. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org, and we'll be happy to get to those questions and respond to them. Have a great day, and if it's snowing where you are like it is where I am, go out and enjoy the snow, and maybe even eat some snow cream. It's a little family secret. Maybe I'll tell you about it later. But for now, here's Play Therapy Part 2 with Amanda Green. Hey, we're back on Noggin Notes. It's uh, Play Therapy Episode 2, and I'm Jake, as always, joined by Amanda Green for the second installment of this conversation. Hi, Amanda. Hello. It was enlightening last time when we were talking about play therapy, and we we covered so many uh, concepts, and I, I, I think that we tend to, to blow through this stuff as, as professionals kind of know what, we're, what each other's talking about, and I want to slow down a little bit and pick some of it apart for the audience in this episode. When we were talking, you were you were um, you were mentioning how you came to be a play therapist, and I thought it was hilarious because I I didn't I'd never heard that story before. But you're basically pressed into duty during your graduate school. Tell that. So when I when I was starting my practicum as a master student, and they had nobody else working with children uh, to do play therapy, and so I just took a three hour like in in person training through the the school and, um, and I said, Hey, I'm enjoying this. Like I want to do it. And they were like, just go read everything that you can on it. Seek supervision. And so it's, it's my favorite thing to do. And you did, you immersed yourself in it. Now you've become very good at it. And I think that's really encouraging because sometimes when we, when we're asked to do things that are very far out of our comfort zone, we resist. And it turns out if, um, we may be resisting the thing that we're called to do. And so I, I just enjoyed hearing that story. I thought it was great. For the people who don't know, practicum is when you're in graduate school for counseling or uh, therapy, you have to do a certain number of hours. That number is usually five or 600 before you can graduate. And that's direct contact hours with actual human beings in the room and you know doing counseling. Uh, Zephyr is a host site for practicum students uh, going through their their practicum hours and you did yours on campus at the university of nevada in a place called the downing clinic and they just happened to need somebody to treat children over the summertime and didn't have anybody and they looked at you and said hey yep did i see you raise your hand <laughs> no oh i i think you raised your hand and you got voluntold but it turned out to be a good thing and i'm uh, i think we're all better off for it and i'm glad that uh, i'm glad you're with our agency because our clients definitely benefit and they appreciate it the last time in the last episode, I, I very briefly brushed over the idea that play therapy is not just for children. It could be for anybody. Please elaborate. So even though we we, we usually use it with children from age 2 to 10, you can use it with adolescents and you can use it with adults. I've not actually had an adult that has taken me up on playing with my, <laughs> playing with the toys in my office because... 
and it's usually this idea that adults don't play with toys kind of in an idea and that isn't that so sad you know there's there's this hesitancy which you know it's funny because some days when nobody is here that you will sometimes see me playing with some of my toys <laughs> yeah yeah and and that's i think that adds a kind of a wistfully uh, sorrowful element to the the commentary on how society views adults versus children right we're not supposed to have fun or something yeah and i know play therapy isn't supposed to be fun it's therapeutic and we're supposed to learn from it but play is fun we just play differently as adults. We, we do. We do. And and fun is one of those five basic needs that William Glasser talks about that um, I will go into in a different podcast. But I, I just pulled up a quote from Plato that says, you can discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. And I'm not sure if that's accurate attribution. I've just heard it uh, attributed to Plato. But that's what you're doing. You're discovering about people, but more importantly, you're di- helping people discover themselves in this out, literally in this hour of play, you're helping people explore and expand and grow and, and gain more awareness and insight into themselves. And as an adult, I can tell you that taking that play therapy class that we recently did, it was highly frustrating to remove labels and simply reflect on what was going on. Yeah. You know, and instead of it's, that's the behavior that's happening, not about me needing Mm -hmm. to label or fix or jump in or do those kind of things that, that most people want. What would an adult gain from play therapy? I can certainly speculate, but I don't want to. I want you to answer. I guess my opinion would be that they would be able to be more comfortable with themselves in a sense where, you know, it's that, and I especially think maybe some of the parents that I have that uh, I have play with some of the children that I see and is there's this uncomfortability about I'm an adult, I'm not supposed to be doing this or, you know, I, I don't know what to do. And, and it, it allows them to get onto their chi- child's level, you know, be able to sit down and play Barbie with your child and be comfortable because yeah. there's nothing wrong with playing Barbie. Well, and it helps connect with the children. Yes. And that's what we really want. We want human connectivity and that's what emotional functioning is about. We don't share experiences. We share emotions. Though yeah. we, we all have the same 10. And if I can't get down to my child's level and play like a child with my child, I'm going to seem very cold and aloof and distant. And then maybe if we do that to such a degree you know over time that the child no longer trusts us maybe maybe relationships break apart or we don't we just we just don't connect as well with our children then we wonder why they don't come to us when they're in trouble and and all sorts of things so i think that's really critical so if you're an adult listening to this and you go into your counseling office uh and you ask for play therapy um they may look at you like you have a hole in your head because you're you've probably never asked that before but definitely explore that definitely explore the idea that um, play is useful if even if you don't have children it's good to know oneself and to calm down and not necessarily need to be quote unquote in control by labeling it with your own terminology yeah and I think going back to that connection piece too is oftentimes as an adult we expect children to come up to our level to be mm-hmm. able to logically think and mm-hmm. to argue that rationale and instead sometimes you know getting down and connecting with them on that level allows for them to come up sometimes and connect on our level great point great point as an intern when i was working at a, a residential treatment facility for for children and adolescents it was very challenging for me to work with the pediatric kids the kids under 10 um for that very reason i was trying to talk to them as though they were adolescents and they're not and once i turned the corner on being able to literally to get on the ground like literally get on their level uh on my hands and knees and play with play-doh dolls uh cars 
and express, man, it was such a breakthrough because I let go of all my intellect. I turned off my frontal lobe and let limbic flow. And it was, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. And I know it was, it was good for the kids too, because we didn't have that obstruction in, in between us of cognition. Yeah. And, and I think we get lost in that sometimes. You got your book open, your Gary Landreth book. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about these, these 10, um, these 10 fundamental, what are they called? 10, uh, um, somethings. The objectives, objectives, therapeutic thank objectives you. for, um, speaking so, of all that language oh. that we have, I <laughs> can't even draw on it when I need it. So the objectives of play therapy, um, one through 10. And so one's develop a more positive self-concept. So instead of it shifting, cause sometimes I get children in here that say I'm bad. Um, like I'm a bad person and shifting it to more. I made a bad decision. Yeah. And yeah. so moving from more of the shame concept to the the guilt that I made a bad decision, I can learn from it and move on. You are not what you do. Correct. You are not yeah. your thoughts. You are not your behaviors. You are you and you, you do things and they may or may not be good or bad, but yeah, moving away from the identity of the, of the thing. Mm-hmm. Which oftentimes parents will come in and just see their child as that identity, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And so allowing the child, you know, to say like, that maybe is something that I do, but not not all of me, not part of me. One of the things we want to drive home to uh, all listeners is the idea that you you are not your what you do. Similarly, you are not your diagnosis, and neither is your kid. So we may have a kid who is struggling with some oppositional or defiant or attention deficit issues, um, but we don't say he is oppositional defiant disorder. He is ADHD. He no, nor, nor would I walk around saying I am the flu. Uh, because the idea is that through insight and awareness and behavioral change, we can change away from those diagnoses and stop, you know, performing in those behaviors. And that's not reflective of my identity. As soon as I start to think it's my identity, it becomes really hard to change because then it leaves me identityless. Yeah. So we don't want to say that our kids are something. We want to say they're doing something because I can change what I do. And it and it has another level of, of distance there, too, instead of it being about me and my child, that it says, you know, my child does this. Right, and right. It's just that. this thing, yeah. What's number two? Um, this, um, number two is assume greater self-responsibility. So that's that piece of they get to choose. They're, they're making that behavior, that action in here. Owning not, what they do. Yeah, and, and owning it. Um, becoming more self-directing. So sometimes you get children in here that um, look at me and... What should I play with? What should I do? Ah, yeah. And it's and that's that tells me that most likely a lot of the adults in their life constantly tell like that restrictive environment, tell the tell child what always do. what to do, and that the child, you know, when when it comes time to for them to make their own decisions, they don't know what to do, mm-hmm. and so this kind of this dependency need. I was going to ask you why that's important, but you just said it, and it's because children need to learn to know what to do on their own because they're not going to be under someone else's guidance or, or restriction forever. At some point, they're going to have to know what to do on their own. 18 is usually the age that we throw out when they grow up and become quote-unquote adults. And uh, they're not going to be looking to the outside world to tell them what to do. We'll leave the side commentary on whether or not that's <laughs> happening at an increasing rate aside, um, but it's worth noting. So we've got three things so far. Self-concept, self Responsibility, responsibility, self-directing, and self-direction. Um, becoming more self-accepting. There's so another self. there's that self-esteem piece that, like, I I am a good person. I you know I I 
You yeah, are a good and, person. Like, I, and the, the, belief, the, <laughs> the belief about like, you know, the, the, the good belief about self instead of the just seeing negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a kid that comes in here and tells me I am evil and, oh. you know, which is really like, I'm just, I, I become incredibly sad when I hear yeah. that. And, you know, it's that, um, no, you just, you're a good person. You just choose to make bad behavior sometimes. Yeah. And and I imagine that involving the parents and shaking up that, that tradition or that habit or that pattern of, of the kid believing that he's evil and then stating it, uh, you want to help the parents uh, say, whoa, whoa, we don't, you know, we don't talk like that. You're a good person. You know, something like that. Do you do that with parents much? Um, I do a lot of parenting techniques that, uh, depending on what the need is, uh, the ones that you've gone over so far, like, uh, Conte's four C's and, um, the emotional functioning, the brain, the brain functioning and emotional processing and executive functioning. I go over with parents because I want them to be able to identify the child's feelings too outside Mm -hmm. of it. Instead of when the child says I'm sad and the parent goes, no, 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 you're scared. You know, I want them to be able to to help their child identify feelings because yeah. we know that's what makes a good adult, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a healthy adult, not a good adult. <laughs> um, and so I do a, I, I do like short parenting techniques, tidbits here and there. Let, um, so if uh, somebody, a being just is, is, is depressed or see, has a huge negative self-identity, I'll encourage parents to, to, you know, state more positives than negatives and... Uh, so that way, the child hears more positives. Actually, yeah. I'll even encourage the parents to not even state the negatives, to just do something to change it, but don't even talk about it a lot. Um, like it's just a thing, because it is. Yeah. It's just a thing, and it goes away, and then we move on to the next thing. Because oftentimes when we have a lot of problem behaviors or uh, you know a lot of concerning behaviors, is that's all our focus is on. And if you can't see me, I'm like creating a tunnel vision with my hands mm-hmm. in front of me, and... Um, and so it's just, instead, let's see the whole picture. I'm not going to focus on this one little area, but let's see the whole picture. And we know focusing more on the positive things that are happening increases healthy, good behaviors. That's tough. And we could talk a lot about that, you know, and and the judgments that parents carry in from the outside. And, you know, they, they maybe have the false belief that if they focus on the whole picture, then they're not quote unquote punishing appropriately the, the, you know, the sins of the child or whatever. And, and, um, and that could be an entirely, uh, you know, an entire podcast topic on its own. But, um, just noticing that if we, if we expand the scope of vision from the tunnel onto the negative behavior to the child as a whole, uh, the child himself or herself starts to feel a lot more, um, growth and, and development and positivity. Yeah. And then, and then, thus, when they feel better about themselves, they tend not to do negative things as often. Mm-hmm. Uh, five become more self reliant, which just kind of goes back onto that figuring out for yourself, um, being able to to handle your frustrations. Six engage in self determined decision making. So, you know, if if they can't figure out how to open the model magic, you know, do I use my teeth? Do I, you know, use scissors, or do I ask someone for help? Like, mm-hmm. what's the hierarchy in there? And being able to to Find multiple ways of doing something. So that's um, six things with self in them. Yes. Keep going. Um, seven, experience a feeling of control. So this is the, like, that um, I can express my feeling. I'm in charge of my feeling. It, you know, it's three to nine seconds. And 
it, it it's it's not me it's not all of me it's i can move on from it yeah and not to confuse that the the concept of control is not a feeling in and of itself but that you're in charge of you have a sense of control over your feelings and that they don't control you um being aware of the process of coping that there's multiple coping strategies mm-hmm. for all different feelings so being able to come up with that comes back to the decision making and how can i overcome this feeling how can i not let it stick um nine develop an internal source of evaluation so that's that introspective kind of the identification if i choose to do this then i choose for this to have happen that choice and the consequence to it so does that uh hinge on how far developed the child is whether or not they can um predict behaviors predict consequences from choices like, can you do that easier with somebody who's older than younger, or does it matter? Um, when with the younger population, I'll I'll state both the <clears throat> um, you, you know both sides of the coin. So if you choose to stop doing that, you choose to continue doing this. If you choose to do that, you choose to like lose this or whatever punishment happens. So I'll I'll state both sides. Mm-hmm. And with teenagers, I shorten it. So pretty much, if I if you choose to to do that, you choose to lose your Nintendo for the night and they pretty much can understand the other side of that. Um, I think though, you know, as, as we state it and more and more that we get used to understanding that there is a consequence to each one of our behaviors Mm -hmm. and actions that we choose, which I think is then slowly built in over time. Like, uh, and then number 10, um, becoming more trusting of self. So that that goes back to the, you know, I I can trust my own feelings and it it goes back and it speaks to all those other objectives in there too. Right, right. Well, I appreciate that. I know we're running short on time today and um, you've got some clients to go see and um, I I just appreciate you taking time out to contribute to the the audience's own edification because what we really want is to be able to, you know, the tagline of Naga Notes is to educate and enrich your Noggin. And we do want to, you know, share this information. It doesn't no good for us to keep it, you know, tucked away in the in the recesses of our heads or just simply to the therapy sessions of the people who come and see us. We want to share this with people because knowledge is good when it's shared and we want to help others to help themselves. So if this has helped you um, or you want to learn more about it, you know, you can reach out and we'll definitely accept your thanks. But uh, we'll also answer your questions. Info at nogginnotes.com is one place you could send comments or you can write to us at info at zephyrwellness.org and we'll be able to answer those in upcoming podcasts. Thank you for the insight on uh, play therapy and children. And uh, for the Zephyr Wellness team and the Noggin Notes crew, I'm Jake Wiskirchen, wishing you great mental wellness. We'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.